Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor here at The Economist. Coming up on today's show... As the death toll from the new coronavirus rises, we look at the economic fallout. The battle to fix India's stagflation problem. And what are the key lessons from the man known as the father of disruptive innovation? The outbreak of a new coronavirus in China has caused fear and uncertainty across the markets. The Wuhan virus is the worst health crisis China has faced in years. Planes have been grounded and whole cities have been put on lockdown. The city of Wuhan, with a population of 11 million people, is an important commercial hub. For corporations in China, the outbreak is a huge blow. Stephanie Studio is The Economist's senior China business correspondent based in Shanghai. Hello, Stephanie. Hi, Simon. And Simon Cox is our Emerging Markets Editor based in Hong Kong. Hello, Simon. Hi. Stephanie, can I start with you and ask about Wuhan itself, along with most of its surrounding province, Hubei, it's in lockdown. How much does that matter to the Chinese economy? So Wuhan is a big manufacturing hub in China. The city has about 500 factories that would usually be churning out everything from car parts to pharmaceuticals and optical equipment. It has big steel and iron industry as well. And also China's third largest car manufacturer, Dongfeng Motor, is based there. But a key thing to note here is that production had already wound down at these factories for the Lunar New Year holiday by the time the travel ban and quarantine came into effect in Wuhan. So it will be hard to distinguish for some time between what is a routine seasonal business slump for these businesses and more serious disruptions the virus may be causing. So you could imagine that if restrictions lifted relatively soon, then production could slowly ramp up again. On the other hand, retail businesses that would have remained open in this period, so cinemas, department stores, they've already taken a big hit. And Wuhan's not only a big manufacturing hub, but also a buzzing city of 11 million consumers. And it has China's largest student population too. What's the situation like in in other big commercial centres? What's it like in Shanghai, for example? So in Shanghai, where I am, companies have been told not to reopen before February 9th, which is effectively a 10-day extension to the public holiday. Walking around today in central Shanghai, the streets are very quiet. But again, it's hard to know if that's just a, a, a usual suspension of usual consumer activity over this period. Disneyland has a resort in the city and said it would close during what is usually one of its busiest times of the year. And elsewhere, Suzhou nearby, which is a, a big manufacturing hub where Samsung has a factory, Foxconn, which makes phones for Apple, also has a factory there. 
they're staying shut until the 8th. And a little further south in Macau, the casinos, of course, have fallen very quiet. And Simon, can you tell us how things are in Hong Kong? Yeah, well, this comes after, you know, a period of uh, protest and disgruntlement that's already damaged the economy quite severely. So um, it was in many ways the last thing uh, the city needed. The streets are also quiet. Um, People are very quick to wear masks. Many people have noted the irony that a couple of months ago, the government was trying to ban face masks. Now we're being encouraged uh, to wear them and people need no encouragement. I mean, after the SARS epidemic in 2003, the culture here is very cautious about transmitting any kind of disease and people are very quick to wear masks, even when they just have a simple cold. So, you know, even expats have started being shamed into wearing masks. I suddenly felt very conspicuous not wearing one. And Stephanie, you mentioned that China was effectively shut down anyway for the Chinese New Year holiday, which has been extended. I mean, how do people expect the return to their jobs to work out? Is it certain people will go back on February the 9th? Is it the same date all over the country? Well, no, there is great uncertainty. And at the moment, it seems to be a sort of patchwork of responses to the virus and its spread from cities around the country. For a lot of manufacturing companies, they'll be concerned that workers who've gone back to their hometowns for the Lunar New Year break, as every year, may not return. We've heard that about 5 million left Wuhan in the days preceding the lockdown, and many of those will have been migrant workers going back home. If the government decides that it cannot relax restrictions for some time yet, then they may simply not return. And Simon, you compared this to the SARS outbreak in 2003, which had a profound impact on Hong Kong's economy. Do people really think this might be as bad? Well, people think it could be worse. One of the things about SARS was that it was difficult to transmit if you weren't showing symptoms. And one of the problems with coronavirus is that people seem to be transmitting it even before they're showing symptoms. It's true that the uh, mortality rate, insofar as we can measure it, seems low. But actually, SARS wasn't all that high. um, And it still obviously hugely disrupted daily life and uh, crippled the economy, which is so reliant on people flowing freely in and out of the city. And it's obviously terribly early days and very uncertain. But are economic forecasters already hazarding guesses as to what impact this might have on Hong Kong's growth figures and indeed China's as a whole. Yeah, so for Hong Kong, people are talking about one and a half percentage points, two percentage points shaved off uh, growth, but growth is already shrinking, right? So it was, uh, it shrank by what was it, 2.9%, I think, in the third quarter. And of course, the fourth quarter includes November, which was a horrible month for protests when, you know, a number of universities were essentially under siege and, and large numbers of streets were cut off. So um, it's just been a very grim uh, run of economic uh, news here in Hong Kong. What about for China as a whole? So for China as a whole, um, because obviously it's spread over a much bigger economy that's not nearly as dependent on tourism, the effect could be uh, more limited. And actually, you know, China's economy finished last year on a reasonably strong note. A number of people were um, gaining in optimism about China's economy. So at the moment, I think forecasters for China's economy are um, slightly more um, sanguine. Uh, They aren't downgrading nearly as quickly as they are for Hong Kong. What about the regional and and indeed global implications of all this? Markets have been rattled everywhere, right? Well, uh, they have. I think that Wall Street seems to have recovered a bit uh, on Tuesday. We've seen it in the oil price because, of course, the uh, airline industry is a big consumer of fuel. But certainly uh, in sort of factory Asia, disruptions to supply chains are very difficult. And anywhere like Thailand that's um, tourism dependent, this is also going to be a big blow. 
And Stephanie, just on a personal basis, how is this affecting your life and your ability to do your job in China if travel has become so difficult? Well, for a start, uh, for any journalist who might want to go to Wuhan and report there, it's become increasingly difficult to do so. The government probably doesn't want to have journalists running about there, especially with hospitals overflowing. So it was up until last week, relatively easy to get in, harder to get out. Elsewhere in China, there are some cities that have stopped interprovincial bus links, but rail and flights are still operating. And indeed, at the moment, there won't be any problem of um, finding a seat because most of them are are empty. But on the whole, people are are basically hunkering down and, and staying in. So Perhaps worth adding that there are some companies that are actually doing quite well from this temporary shutdown. And those are gaming companies, Netties and Tencent in particular, food delivery companies, as everybody decides to stay home. And surgical mask manufacturers. Yes, absolutely. There are factories that have opened up again during a time when they would usually have stopped so that they can sell more. Stephanie, thank you. Thank you. And Simon, thank you very much as well, and and thanks for staying on the line. Because along with Tom Easton, the Economist's Mumbai bureau chief, you've been investigating the trouble facing India's economy. Their rising prices and falling growth mean the economy's experiencing the phenomenon known as stagflation. Tom, to start with, can you give us some examples of prices that are rising in India? It really began many months ago. Um, Sometimes during the summer you get these spikes in vegetables. The one about onions was much publicized. It happened to chickens. It happened to bananas. It happened outside of the food supply in other areas of the economy for all sorts of different reasons. But the direction was always upwards. It was rail fares. It was um, prices for vehicles. It was prices for essential pharmaceuticals. There were just cost pressures throughout the Indian economy. Now, sometimes those retreat in the winter, particularly the food prices. But this year, they did not. Uh, So that's the uh, inflation bit. What about the stag? How is the economy doing overall? Well, if I can answer, the the economy is not doing well. The only um, producers that I've spoken to who seem to be doing better are people who produce chocolate, which may be a cry for help. Everything else is is down. And in fact, the statistics for going through um, September, which were the most recent statistics, show a decline both in corporate revenues and in consumer um, consumption of electricity. And that suggests the economy is really, really in deep trouble. You know, the official statistics, as Simon will go through, show a erosion in GDP growth from very high numbers to slower numbers. But it may be far worse than the statistics are showing. Well, Simon, you, you've been advertised as telling us the numbers for the Indian economy. So could you do that and also suggest what the government might do to alleviate the slowdown? Sure. The most recent growth figure was 4.5%, which isn't too bad by world standards, but is quite disappointing by India's recent standards. This is an economy that aspires to grow at rates of 7 or 8%, indeed um, felt almost entitled to growth rates of that kind of pace, according to some commentators. And the slowdown's been prolonged. Uh, Some people date it right back to the beginning of 2018, uh, when consumption seemed to start weakening. Some people date it even further back, uh, saying that the trouble really started with a couple of rather uh, controversial measures the government introduced. uh, One, uh, demonetization, removing large denomination banknotes from circulation. The other, the introduction of a goods and services tax, a form of VAT, that was good in theory, but has had trouble in implementation. 
And then others say that, you know, look, uh, investment in India has actually been weak for even longer than that. It never really recovered uh, from the uh, rebound from the global financial crisis. Now, there's a budget, the annual budget, I think, this Saturday. What might the government produce in that to speed things up? Well, their room for manoeuvre is quite limited. Um, Revenue is a week. I mentioned this goods and services tax, which is not bringing in as much money as they'd hoped. They've already uh, announced quite a bold cut in corporate income taxes. So their scope for further easing is somewhat constrained. I mean, people think there'll be some tweaks to personal income tax to take more people out of that and perhaps a few um, SOPs thrown at uh, share investors, perhaps changing the capital gains tax. Tom, what do you think? Well, there have been rumors of the personal income tax, and you know they're both redrawn and then they reemerge. But often people say when the personal income tax comes in, if there is a cut, given how constrained the government is, they're going to have to raise revenues through other things. So there are rumors of higher tariffs for 50 different products, you know, more confusing taxes in other places, more fees, There'll be some asset sales, but those asset sales may kind of be um, shell games in which one government entity will sell an asset to another government entity and in the process pay a dividend to the government that can be paid out in some other way. None of these options are particularly encouraging. So there's both tremendous attention being paid to this budget and just dread for what it may contain. If there are not many hopes on the on the fiscal front, Simon, what, what about monetary policy? The central bank, the reserve bank has an inflation target, doesn't it? How does that impact all this? Yeah, so that was introduced, uh, I mean, formally introduced in 2015. And it's been remarkably successful. I mean, India's had uh, an unusually benign period of low inflation. But even the person who introduced that inflation targeting framework, uh, the former governor of the Reserve Bank in India, says that the framework's untested so far. It hasn't really had a big inflationary spike to cope with until now. And one of the causes of stagflation, one of the reasons why price spikes turn into ongoing inflation uh, is because people come to believe that the inflation will stay. Uh, It becomes embedded in people's expectations. And one of the rationales for inflation targeting is to try and short circuit that process. You make a very public commitment to keeping inflation, in India's case, to 4%. And you hope that people will believe it and that they'll believe that target over the evidence of the vegetable market. And so that hasn't yet been tested, whether the Reserve Bank has that kind of credibility. But at the very least, I suppose we're not likely to see interest rate cuts very soon. Okay, so there's some some controversy about this. I mean, um, they've already paused. They've been cutting uh, last year. They paused unexpectedly in December. And now we're sort of waiting to see how quickly this inflation spike dissipates. Uh, And some people are saying, look, we're already seeing onion prices coming down. This will all be over in a couple of months. And then we can get back to easing sometime in the spring or summer. That's the optimistic view. And then the worry warts say, well, you you don't know. I mean, as as Tom mentions, the inflationary pressures seem broader than just vegetables. uh, And perhaps people will uh, come to expect it. I remember the last um, period of inflation in India. I was based in India at the time. And people kept saying, look, it's just food, it's just food, it'll go soon, it'll go soon. And actually, it turned into a prolonged problem that uh, led to quite a difficult run on the rupee in 2013. Tom, I think you wanted to jump in there. No, I agree absolutely with what Simon said. You know, a lot of the policies of the Indian government are kind of anti-price policies. For instance, you know, when Jeff Bezos came to India recently, you know, representing Amazon, the industries minister was quite critical of Amazon and Bezos. And, you know, they do this because they want to protect the small stores, which are so important both to India and to the voting base of the ruling party, the BJP. But 
you know, and they would like to see higher prices for many components of the Indian economy. They would like farmers to have higher wages and have higher prices for their food and to earn more money. They would like other areas to have more pricing flexibility. Under kind of a government plan, prices are going up for telecom charges. So it's not clear that the government from one end to another is really in favor of capping inflation. They want inflation in some places, and yet they don't want inflation overall. And it's very hard to create an economic structure that is conducive to inflation in many areas and yet doesn't have overall inflation. The market is just too complicated for that. Tom, thank you very much. And Simon, for a double performance out of Hong Kong. My pleasure. Thanks very much. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. And finally, the man known as the father of disruptive innovation died this month. Clayton Christensen, an American academic and businessman, was best known for his work, The Innovator's Dilemma. Clay Christensen was one of the most influential management thinkers of the last generation. Vijay Vaitiswaran is The Economist's US business editor. He was a professor at Harvard Business School for many years and wrote several books that had quite a strong impact on how modern managers thought, particularly in the technology industry. Andy Grove, who was a legendary boss of Intel, for example, called his work uh, the most important he had read in a decade. Our newspaper has called him one of the six most important management thinkers of our times. So it was really quite influential. That's not to say that uh, his ideas were without challenge or controversy, but nevertheless, in terms of influence, Clay Christensen had an outsized influence on management. One of Christensen's best-known theories was that of disruptive innovation. In 2012, he spoke to the Harvard Business Review about what he meant. A disruptive innovation transforms a product that historically was so expensive and uh, complicated that only a few people with a lot of money and a lot of skill had access to it. A disruptive innovation makes it so much more affordable and accessible that a much larger population have access to it. And one of the big examples he gave was about the car maker Ford. It was the dilemma that General Motors and Ford faced when they tried to decide, should we go down and compete against Toyota, who came in at the bottom? Or should we make even bigger SUVs for even bigger people? At an economist conference, also in 2012, he spoke to Vijay about the importance of companies being brave enough to experiment. They're big companies, small companies, some succeed, some fail, some we call disruption, some not. Here's the way I think about it. There are jobs that arise in people's lives that they need to get done. And if you think about your business by the job, right. then when these new technologies come from the left and the right, you can see them for what they are. Holy cow, it would do the job better than what we've had before. But despite the critical acclaim Christensen's work received, it was not without its limitations. The theory of disruptive innovation, and this is something that uh, Clay Christensen himself 
came to acknowledge over time applied to a certain kind of innovation. There are other kinds of innovations that did not come from below, from the cheap and cheerful outsider or from gadflies. He, for example, did not think the Apple iPhone was going to take off in the way that it did, and he acknowledged that later on. Towards the end of his career and while battling a series of illnesses, Christensen turned his attention to applying his management techniques to people's daily lives. He became quite interested in healthcare, and he became deeply interested in how America's healthcare system grew dysfunctional, as well as how innovation worked in a somewhat perverse system like America's healthcare system. So that was the focus of a good amount of his later work. And he wrote a book entitled, How Will You Measure Your Life? In a TED Talk in 2012, he spoke about the ways he encouraged his students to apply his management techniques to their personal development. At the end of the course, on the last day, rather than asking them to just put on these lenses and examine yet another company, I asked him to look in the mirror and ask them, can you explain why your life is the way it is today because of these theories? And can you predict what will happen in your life if you continue to do what you are now doing? The thing I remember most about Clay Christensen is his humanity. Though he was uh, a titan amongst management thinkers and professors and lionized by many, he was extremely humble in person. And what he loved more than anything else was uh, questions. In fact, uh, he loved being asked difficult questions, challenging questions. When I die, and they're going to interview me outside of heaven to decide whether they're going to let me in, I'm going to start by saying, I got some questions for you first. (laughs) Clayton Christensen died this month after complications from the treatment of cancer. Our thanks to Vijay Vaitiswaran. And you can find an article about Clayton Christensen in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. Subscribe today. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen. I'm Simon Long in London. This is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.